Well, our scripture this morning comes from Romans chapter 12, and we will be looking at verses 14 through 21 uh, together. And the words will be up on the screen, but you are invited uh, to take your Bible or a mobile device uh, and turn there, swipe there, if that is um, what you'd like to do. Hey, Ken, can you hit the uh, one with the PowerPoint? Well, Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21 says this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, as we continue in our time of worship, Ken, you can leave the PowerPoint up there, sorry, for the duration of the sermon. Sorry, I've added this in, so we're, we're figuring it out. Well, as we wrap up our series, We Are the Church this morning, we reflect back on where we have been. We have been thinking about what does it mean to be the church inside these walls. In the first week, we looked at unity and how sometimes we strive for uniformity, but how that really has never happened. But what has happened is the church has been unified as one body in Christ moving forward in the world as they've worked together and move together, and we seek that same unity even when we don't agree on everything. The second week we talked about what it means to be a beloved community in the world, a set-apart and holy community that interacts with the world differently. Last week we looked at what it means to have the genuine love of Christ in the world, what those characteristics look like for us as we interact with the world. Well, this morning, as we wrap up this series of what it means to be the church, what does it mean for us to get together? We are going to look outward. What does it mean for us to interact with the world around us as the body of Christ? And one of the things that we are going to do as we do that is continue our journey through Romans chapter 12, uh, where Paul has been talking about, here's what it means to be the church. And he's writing to the church at Rome. A church that is divided from people who are Gentile and people who are Jewish, who both claim Christ, trying to figure out how they interact. They're in the, one of the capital cities of the empire, where everything is about wealth and about celebrity and socioeconomic status. And Paul is trying to teach them, here is how you are the church. Because, of course, one of the things that we know is that the early church wasn't just made up of the wealthy. It wasn't just made up of the poor. It was made up of both of those and everyone in between. And they constantly had this struggle of trying to figure out how do we associate with one another. Because, of course, outside of the church, they didn't associate together. And if they did, it was generally the poor serving the wealthy. 
Paul constantly says to them over and over and over again, at the table of Christ, you have to set all of that aside. He even had problems with the early church getting together for communion at different times. The wealthy would come earlier in the day so that those who were not wealthy would not be there with them as they shared the communion meal together. Things like that happened in the early church. And of course, we know what that's like. We know how difficult it is to change who we are uh, as we move forward in the world. And I can imagine in their world, where everything was being turned upside down by the teaching of Jesus, Paul's call for transformation, even in how they interact with each other, would be difficult. And so in Romans 12, as he, as he wraps up this particular thought of uh, his from this passage, he begins to turn his attention outward and say, here is how you interact with the world. And as I thought of what that looks like in our world, and thought about what that means for us, I thought about how bold of a thing it is. How bold it has to be for us to step out into a world that is so different sometimes from what maybe Christ has taught, is so different from what the community we share inside the church. Well, I thought, this is a bold thing that we're doing. Stepping out into the world and sharing our faith and sharing Jesus with people and trying to figure out how do we do that when we're a high school student? How do we do that when we work at a bank? How do we do that when we work at a grocery store? How do we do that when we're just trying to be our normal selves and get through the daily grind? But Paul says it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a soldier. It doesn't matter if you're a Caesar. It doesn't matter if you're a slave. It doesn't matter if you're the poorest person in the city of Rome. Christ has something to say about that. And so we move forward in a bold way. And as I think of boldness and bold journeys, there's one thing that I always think about. And some of you may groan when I say this. I say that a lot, don't I, when I give examples. Some of you may groan about the things that I like. But I want to point this out. And some of you may groan simply because you like the other version of this. But one of the things that I like to watch, and I'm not a person who has posters on my wall. I'm not a person who has cosplay you know, uniforms where I can dress up. But I always like to watch Star Trek. Now, Star Trek is one of those shows that a lot of people like. Uh, somebody's giving me the Vulcan salute for the sanctuary, so there you go. Live, long, and prosper. But uh, it's one of those shows that, that always is full of a lot of stuff. And some of the older shows, there's some really funny stuff that if you watch it now, you're like, how did I ever enjoy that as TV? And then today, everything's CGI'd and, and flying through space. But Star Trek is one of those shows where people time and time again boldly go where no man or woman, has gone before. And one of my favorite captains in the Star Trek series is Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Now, Jean-Luc Picard, played by Sir Patrick Stewart, was captain of the Enterprise D in the Next Generation series. And Jean-Luc Picard is different from other captains in that he was known for not shooting first when he went out into the universe and interacted with other people or alien races or worlds. He always wanted to take the diplomatic approach. He always tried to argue for reason and for morality. He always went out into the world and tried to be an emissary of peace wherever he could. Now, as a soldier in Starfleet, he wasn't able to always do that, but that was always his starting point, to boldly go into the universe wherever it took him and to try to better that universe for his presence there. Well, one of the things that Picard is known for, all of the captains have a catchphrase, but what he would say as he wanted the ship to go forward was engage. And I can't really do his accent, and I'm not going to try, but he would always say that, and the ship would go, and they would go to these worlds where he would seek to boldly change 
the universe in which he was going. Well, today as the church, we're kind of like Captain Picard a bit. We are called to go into the world around us and to engage it in a way that changes it, but doesn't destroy it. A way that changes it, but flips it on its head from what's expected. That changes everything about how even people perceive who we are. Now, Jesus calls us in the Great Commission before He goes back to heaven at the Ascension to go into the world and make disciples. In other words, to go into the world and not just tell people about Jesus, not just be a Christian, but to boldly go into the world, tell people about Jesus, and then disciple them. Help them grow in faith. Help them become people who change the world. But part of going and taking Jesus into the world is believing that we can change that world. Believing that we can transform that world. Well, as we look at Romans 12 and finish our look in that chapter, Paul gives us some idea of what it means for us to engage boldly with a bold faith in the world and in the way that we might be called to do that in 2020. And I think Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21 leads us to two questions that I want to ask this morning. The first one of those is how do we often engage as the church? If we're trying to figure out what does it mean for us to be the church, how does the world outside of the church, the people who aren't a part of the Christian faith or aren't a part of the community of faith worshiping on Sundays, how do they perceive the ways that we engage? Now some of the things I'm about to say, some of you would say, I've never done this before, this is not what the church is to me. I just want to remind you that you sit here in a pew or a chair or you tune in on your computer or your TV every Sunday. So you probably don't think about the church from this perspective, but I promise you from working with young adults for a good amount of my ministry career, this is common, and this is how they believe that we engage the world. The first way that they would say we often as the church engage the world is by creating a culture of division, an us versus them society. Now on some level it may be Christian versus not Christian. We believe this, they believe that, we're right, they're wrong, and a lot of people outside the church believe that we want to take every opportunity we can to tell them just how wrong they are. We want to tell them that we are superior and they are not. We also created in the church around skin color, whether that be Caucasian versus people of color, or maybe that's also nationality, American Christianity versus some other version of Christianity. We also draw lines and create division around politics, Democrat versus Republican, or Libertarian, or third party, and this is the party of Jesus, and this is the party of Jesus, and anybody on the other side of the line of that has nothing to do with Christ. They can't even possibly be Christian. That's actually said on both sides, so whichever side you may be on, know that that's said on the other side as well. And in the church, people look at us and they see us divided on those lines. Now, maybe not always inside of a church, because sometimes we don't talk about those things, but certainly when we take one church and another church and put them together, people see those divisions and they see how we interact. Because no matter how we find the difference, somehow as the church, we draw lines in the sand. And we say, the people on the other side, well, they are not a part of the community of Christ. Or they don't have a chance to be a part of the community of Christ unless they come to my side of the line. 
And outside the church, people look at us and say, that is how they engage with us. That is who the church is. And I have no desire to be a part of that. The second thing that's also related is we often are seen as a people of hate, not a people of love. Which has always been interesting to me because when I started attending church at 8th grade and started studying Jesus' teachings and who Jesus was, I didn't really get a person of hate. Now sure, Jesus hated the way that some of uh, the religious order of the day were treating the church. He hated the way that they were treating the poor as possibly a poor uh, individual himself growing up. He hated the way people perverted religion and perverted who Christ, who God was, and he had some hate for that. But one thing that Jesus never does in the Gospels is hate other people. Jesus is a figure where little children run to him and want to sit with him because his presence is so appealing to them. He's someone who people who are sick are not afraid to walk up to, to even just touch his robe to be near him to possibly get healing. He's a figure who is of little importance, but whose soldiers in Caesar's uh, army are not afraid to come to, to talk to, to seek healing with. Jesus is a figure who everyone from tax collectors to fishermen to children to religious leaders want to be with, want to converse with, want to talk to. And I think a part of this is because even though Jesus didn't like some of the way things were done in His world, obviously He taught some countercultural things to that, He always showed people that they had value, that not only did He love them, but also that God loved them. And Jesus sought to share that message with the world. I mean, one of the verses He tells to the Pharisee Nicodemus is, for God so loved the world that He sent me here with a message of change and of transformation. And so it's always been odd to me that people outside the church so easily see the church as a group, a community of hate instead of love when everything that we do is built upon a Savior, a teacher, a person who leaves the 99 to go find the one because of the love that He has for them. The other thing that people often see as we engage the world around us is that we carry an air, of, an air of superiority. And this goes back to the division. We are right. They are wrong. We have the monopoly on the right answer of what it means to be a person in this world. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't step out into the world and be followers of Christ in spaces with people of other faiths or people of other uh, belief systems uh, and conversations, even in Christianity, people who differ from us. But when we do that, we should do that as a people of love. A people who are there to engage because we represent Jesus. Not a people who are there just to tell someone how wrong they are. Because believe me, and all of you know, if someone walks up to you and says, hey, guess what? You're wrong. What do you hear after they say that the rest of the time? You hear nothing that they have to say. But if they listen to you, if they say, hey, tell me what your view of this is. Tell me how you got there. And we sit and we listen to that story then they are likely to listen to us as well. It's a two-way street. But if you walk up to somebody and tell them how wrong they are and how they can't possibly be a person of faith or a person of moral integrity or anything else, then they're not going to listen any more than you or I would listen as well. We have to listen deeply. David Kinneman, who works for the Barner Research Group, a group that surveys every year, multiple times, thousands and thousands of people in the world, both inside the church and outside of it, wrote a book a few years ago, ago called Unchristian. 
Now, Unchristian is not a book where he looks at people inside the church and tries to figure out how do they view Christianity, how do they view the church. It's a book where he and his researchers ask people who are outside the church, who don't ascribe to Christianity, tell us about what you think Christianity is. Tell us why you would never darken the doors of a church, even if you, you were invited, and even if it felt warm. And one of the things that he says in that book is, the primary reason outsiders feel hostile toward Christians is not because of any specific theological perspective. That may surprise some of you. What they are reacting negatively to is our swagger, how we go about things, and the sense of self-importance that we project. Outsiders say Christians possess bark and bite. Christians may not normally operate in attack mode, but it happens frequently enough that others have learned to watch their step around us. Outsiders feel that they can't let Christians walk all over them. In other words, what we do often as Christians, whether we intend to or not, and even if you as an individual person don't represent this, as soon as you say, I am a Christian, we put people on the defensive. Because they assume, if they aren't Christian themselves, that that may come with some bite. It may not be we're about to tell them what they need to believe. We're about to tell them what they're doing wrong. But as we engage the world around us, often they immediately go, okay, what are they about to do that's going to tear me down and knock me down and and hopefully, I guess, on their part, make me want to be a part of the church with them? In other words, how are they going to hate some part of me instead of loving me from the very beginning? When I was campus minister, the Baptist campus minister at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, I attended a lot of events with my interfaith colleagues, people of all faiths, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, people of other Christian denominations as well. Everyone was represented, and in campus ministry, it's a fairly normal thing to find a group of ministers and imams and rabbis having a meal together and talking about how can we better serve the community around us? How can we come across our divisions and find a way to say the world needs help? People in our community need help, and we can do far more together than we can apart. So how can we sit aside our differences at least for a little while and have conversation together? Well, one of the things we'd often do is try to have dialogue with one another, to learn from one another, to tear down some of the stereotypes that each of us had about the other religion or the other person, to humanize other people on some level. And I remember one particular meeting, I went down to the Hillel, which is the Jewish campus ministry at the University of North Carolina, and I sat down at a table made up of other ministers, other Christian ministers, other uh, religious leaders from other faiths, and of students. We had Christian students, and we had Jewish students, um, and that day that's all we had in that particular room. But at the beginning, the facilitator said, let's go around the table, say who you are, why you're here, and what faith you represent, and if you're a Christian, what denomination you represent. And we went around the table, and the ministers, the Christian ministers, we were for some reason sitting all in a row, and so we went first, and I was the last of the Christian ministers that shared, and I said, I'm Reverend Lawrence Powers, I'm the Baptist chaplain here at UNC Chapel Hill, um, and I'm here to learn from this dialogue. Well, the person who went after me was a young woman who was Jewish, grew up Jewish, that was her faith, her family's faith, and as I was talking, as soon as I said Baptist, her face kind of scrunched up a little bit, almost like she was kind of frustrated that I was even there. And so when it got to her time, before she even introduced herself, she said, 
I'm very surprised that you are sitting at this table. Because when I was growing up, I was told by my parents to be careful around Christians. If someone walked up to me and said, hey, do you know Jesus? And I said, well, Jesus was a good teacher, and I am Jewish, that they would try to convince me that I shouldn't be. But if a Baptist ever walked up to me, I was to turn around and walk away. Because the conversation that I was about to have was going to be hurtful and hateful, and I didn't need to be in the same place as that particular person. And in other words, they were taught that, that Baptist Christians in particular were a people of particular hate, a people of particular superiority. And this young Jewish woman was told to never associate with people like us. We're Baptist, right? Now some of us hear that and we go, how could that ever be possible? And really the answer is, and for me that day was the first time I had ever really experienced that, but it's because I didn't have a lot of conversations like that. I didn't really know how people were perceiving me as a Baptist in the world. I assumed I knew how they were perceiving me as a Christian, but never that there was an entirely different distinction for people in this world for those of us who were Baptist. And from that day forward, it made me want to step into as many of those places as I could and tell people, hey, I'm Baptist, but whatever you think that means, let me tell you what it means to me. Let me tell you who I am as a Baptist Christian of faith. You see, for us, whether we're Baptist and that's where we're approaching a conversation, or whether we are, I hooked my microphone just now. Sorry, Ken. Or whether we are coming at it from a Baptist perspective, people go on the defensive. People are ready for us to attack them. And as we engage the world around us, it seems weird. Because you may be thinking, I'm saying, well, let's stop sharing our faith because we don't want to upset people. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is we follow a teacher who stepped into the world and told people, here is how you can see the world differently. Here's how we can do this thing called life a little better. And sometimes it was different than what they believed. Sometimes it was countercultural to the way everything was accepted, the way everything was believed. And yet, even in those moments, people still felt loved and valued. They didn't immediately go on the defensive. They didn't immediately try to attack Jesus or who he was. Even those who wanted to attack him, even those who wanted to arrest him, they still went about it in a very conversational way. They gave him an opportunity to talk, and every single time they tried to trap him, Jesus always responded out of value and out of love. And oftentimes they walked away unable to even arrest him because he had answered wisely in a way that they couldn't argue with. We follow a teacher who didn't carry bark and bite into all of his conversations, but carried a message that he believed people needed to hear, but did it in a way of love. One other thing that David Kinneman says in uh, UnChristian is this. One crucial insight kept popping up in our exploration and studying thousands of outsiders' impressions. It is clear that Christians are primarily perceived for what they stand against, we, he being a Christian, says we have become famous for what we oppose rather than who we are for. And maybe that doesn't come as a surprise to you because if you work in a place that is diverse around conversations of faith, you may have heard that. Well, I don't want to associate with the church. I don't want to associate with Christians. Why would I go to church? Because this is who they are. They don't like this person or this group of people or this political party or this or this or this or this. And if we were to say to them, okay, I hear you, what do you think the church actually does care about? 
Well, in my experience with young adults, they often can't answer that question because they don't know. Because they only see what we are opposed and what we are against, not what we are for. And so in Romans 12, Paul does give us an answer on how we should engage, which is our second question. How should we be engaging in the world? What does it mean to be a people of faith who follow Christ? And Paul says this, Bless those who persecute you. Do not curse them. Rejoice with those who weep. And rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Celebrate and mourn with people even if it doesn't benefit who you are. In other words, what he says is if you see a funeral procession going down the street, which would have been common in his day, carrying the body of the person who had died, mourning loudly in the street, he's saying to him, don't, he's saying to us, don't close your door and hide, but step out into the street with them. Walk with them. Even if it doesn't benefit you, even if you don't feel emotion about that person who has died, see value in that person's life and mourn with those people. If you come up on a party and people are rejoicing, then find a way to celebrate with them. See that there is joy in this world and step into those places. He's saying, as followers of Christ, you should be able to step into almost every single situation and see where people are hurting or see where people are joyful and be a part of that. And why does Paul say that? He says it because that's exactly what Jesus did every single day of His ministry. We read that in the Gospels over and over again. Paul also says in Romans 12 that we should live in harmony regardless of race, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of political persuasions. And if you think the early church in Rome and in the Roman Empire was not divided around uh, political persuasions and understandings, then you would be very wrong. No, they didn't have Democrats and Republicans and Libertarians and everything in between. But they did have different ways of understanding taxes. They did have different ways of understanding what Caesar's role was. And inside the church, they would have arguments about what that meant and what that looked like. And Paul is saying, even in those differences, you need to stand together as the people of Christ. You won't always agree, but come together. And when you do that, associate with the lowest of society, whatever that may mean for you. Maybe you're extremely wealthy. And the lowest of society is just somebody who isn't wealthy. Sit at the table of Christ with them. Maybe it's a slave and you are a, person, a slave owner even in his society. He says at the table of Christ you associate together. Maybe it's a person who bathes regularly and maybe not, which was common in his day. Sit down side by side at the table of Christ and hand one another food. And why does Paul say this? Well, Paul says this because he knew of Jesus' final example in the world, or one of, and that was when he sat down at the Last Supper with his disciples. Jesus, the teacher, got down on his hands and his feet and washed the feet of his disciples. Feet that didn't get bathed very regularly. Feet that walked through dirty and dusty roads where they literally took their refuse when they used the bathroom into a bucket and dumped it out the second floor window of their house into the street. That's what Jesus and his disciples walked through, especially in the cities and like the city where he was in Jerusalem that day. And yet Jesus, the teacher, gets down on His hands and His knees and washes the feet of those people, of those friends of His. And from that moment forward, Paul and everyone else who followed Him said, that's the servant that you are called to be. A suffering servant who's willing to get down on His hands and His knees, even though He's the Son of God, and wash the dirty, nasty feet of the people who were there. And remember, one of those people was someone who was going to betray Him just a little bit longer. Just a little bit after that. He still loved Judas even in that moment. 
And Paul says that is the example that we are to follow. And more than that, Paul says in Romans 12, as far as it depends on who? On those other people to get it right? As far as it depends on the people that you disagree with to come to your side? No. Paul says in Romans 12, as far as it depends on you, on what you can do, on who you are, live peacefully with other people. Try to interact with people in a way that they know that even though you disagree, you still see value and love for them. In other words, the love of Christ compels us to interact with the world differently. And doing these things will cause people to take notice, will cause people to say, you know what? The church isn't a place that's full of bark and bite. The church is a place that I could see myself going into and being a part of. Jesus is somebody that I could see myself following. Sally A. Brown, a professor at Yale, says, the effect of embodying this self-giving love, self-giving to the point of practicing gift-giving to the enemy, is to signify the transformation God's Spirit is effecting in the world. It's to show the world around us that, you know what? The world doesn't always have to be this way. And that we, as the church, believe that it can change so much that we are going to love deeply, we're going to live as peacefully as we can with other people, even when we disagree, and we are going to be a people of hope. And it's, that says to the rest of the world, the world can be changed. Now, N.T. Wright, in his commentary, he's a theologian and professor of Romans 12, does acknowledge how difficult this is. He says, Paul is realistic. He knows that there will be many times when living at peace with every other inhabitant of the street, let alone the city, will be impossible. But he summons Christians to make every effort in that direction. As we go out into the world boldly and engage the world around us, we won't always get it right. It won't always be easy. We won't always agree. And I think this year and this election year, we recognize that. Because as I said last week, we scroll through Facebook, and when we scroll through Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, maybe not Instagram as much, but Facebook and Twitter at least, we see the divisions that divide us. We see people that normally in normal times we would sit beside on a pew and worship together very divided on how they believe we should vote or understand political candidates or see how things are. And from each perspective they say, I'm coming at this from the place of Christ. And what I've seen time and time again is we aren't willing to listen to one another and say, I'm a Christian and you're a Christian. Let's talk about how we arrived at different places when we read the Bible or other things. We often just shut down other people. And if we do that with other Christians, I think oftentimes we do that without even realizing it with those who are not. And they have no desire to be a part of the church, much less be discipled and taught who Jesus is. Now the reality of it is, is you may say, well, I can't do anything about that. They perceive the church how they perceive the church, and I can't change that. That's not even my fault. That's the fault of other people who came before me, other leaders in the church, people who are long gone or people who aren't in charge anymore. And I would argue that that's not completely true. I think plenty of people in charge today put a bad taste for the church and for Jesus in people's mouths each and every day. But I will admit, there is not a whole lot we can do about the past. There is not a whole lot we can do about how things have been done to today. But what we can do is look ahead and say, alright, you know what, 50 years from now, whenever we are passing from this world and we are leaving a church behind, will the church be known for what they're against? Will the church be known for what they're for? Will the church be known as a place of bark and bite? Or will the church be known as a place just like Jesus who we follow where people can come and be a part and want to be around? 
It is, as Admiral Jean-Luc Picard says in the most recent iteration of Star Trek Picard, the past is written, but we are left to write the future. Friends, we get to decide how Jesus is perceived in the world moving forward. We get to decide if we are going to live out as a people of Christ who even when we state our disagreements, even when we say that we can't go there with you, we still listen, we still respond out of love, we still think deeply, we don't pretend, as Paul said, to know more than we do. Jesus was a person who constantly took time to think. I think of that day He drew a line in the dirt. Not a line of division, but a moment of thought before He answered. A moment to process. And His response caused those people of hate that day to drop the stones that they wanted to, to kill that person with for the wrong that she had done and caused them to walk away. That is who we are called to be in the world. It's not to say that we agree with everything or that everyone is right, but it is to step out onto the world stage and say, I am a follower of Jesus. And I can't do anything about what the followers of Jesus have done up to this point. But moving forward, I want to show you what that really means. I want to show you that I love you and that I am for you and that I see value in you regardless of where you are coming from. And friends, I think people will want to be a part of that. I think that people will want to associate with that Jesus. May we be a people who are known what we are for. And may we boldly go even where no Christian has gone before, and share the love of Christ as we engage those around us.